as we take a look at uh, this section for today, um, first of all, this is our second to the last week in Hebrews. Next week we'll finish with chapter 13. Um, and I know you, you're going to sit there and think, I can't believe if we're going to make it, uh, but we are. And um, one of the things that I had finished my sermon with last weekend was um, I would tell you why I'm still a Minnesota Vikings fan. So I thought I perhaps should start with that. Now, one of the things about last week's um, chapter 11 um, is the amazing historical overview of biblical faith uh, by these patriarchs and matriarchs that are mentioned. Just a quick reminder, we, we talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses' parents and Moses and the people of Israel and Rahab. Remember Rahab the prostitute? The, then we went to Gideon and Barak and Samson, some of the judges. Uh, then to Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all of the prophets. So we went to some of the kings and the prophets. And um, when you uh, continue then, it talked about some of the more concurrent, uh, current um, saints that had suffered and died. And the preacher is most likely referring to people like Peter and Paul um, that were killed for, martyred for their, for their faith. And, um, and then we, if you remember, I talked about the frieze around the uh, cylindrical sanctuary, the first church that I served in, West Central Minnesota. And um, this verse from today was inscribed around that. And then underneath that verse were all these names of the saints that you see in this section of, of uh, Hebrews. They also added more saints. And they added some contemporary saints. And um, uh, uh, then they also had two spots at the end. And one spot was to for you to speak of someone uh, whom you remember who has gone to the church triumphant. And then the last spot was for you to place your name. So uh, every All Saints Sunday, we preached on that piece of art that worked around the sanctuary. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and every weight that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Every year, we recited that verse. And one of the things that I have learned over the years <clears throat> is that those biblical saints and those more current saints and some of the saints of my family and now some of the people who have been alongside me throughout my adult life, <clears throat> that these people have taught me a lot about having faith. Maintaining faith, holding on to faith, even in the midst of challenging times. And so what I have discovered is that 
that I can take that perspective and also look at it to some earthly aspects of my life. I've been a Minnesota Vikings fan since I was a small child. Um, that's when they started the team, 1961. I was barely a, a toddler. And um, I remember that, uh, you know, the first quarterback that I remember of the Vikings was Fran Tarkington, scrambling Fran. And uh, they went to five Super Bowls. They lost every one of them. And, uh, but we always had hope that they would go to another one and that they would win. And so I think I've just kind of transferred that same kind of faith and hope to the Vikings. Not that I don't get frustrated, not that I don't want to give up on them too, but what I know is that, that my hope continues to sustain me. And that's what the preacher of the book of Hebrews is trying to convey to his audience, this congregation, this house church that he is preaching to. When I maintain an act of faith in Jesus, my hope actually increases. When I am actively praying, when I am actively serving, when I am actively discipling people, when I'm preaching and teaching, when, I, when I'm doing the things that I love to do, and, and it shouldn't be just for preachers, it should be for everybody. But when I'm doing the things that I'm called to do, that I love to do, some that I don't love to do, when I, can't, when I keep that focus on Jesus and on having faith, I always end up with hope. When I get down, I go out and I serve. And I receive hope. And so as Christians, I think that the same thing holds true for us. And so faithfulness that I have learned has helped me to have hope, even in the Minnesota Vikings. And if I can have hope in the Vikings, we can all certainly have hope in Jesus. This week, we, we are included in that hope. Therefore, since we are surrounded, we, you and me, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who is your spiritual family? I know many of you, and I know your families, but who is your spiritual family? I just popped out my contact. Excuse me a minute. I've just lost it. All right. <laughs> we'll go without it. <laughs> so I wanted to tell you, because that might be kind of like a trick question for some people. How would you know who your spiritual family is? So let me demonstrate by telling you who my spiritual family is. My spiritual family includes some of those biblical heroes of the faith that we read about in chapter 11. Uh, my spiritual family also includes some more current saints. And um, I would put one of them, Martin Luther. Um, and then there's even more contemporary saints that are included in my spiritual family. And uh, the most contemporary might be like my, my grandmother, my father's mother, my paternal grandmother, um, who loved me and taught me about Jesus when I was a small child. 
My father is, um, even though he too has gone to the church triumphant, my father is one who um, was a, a big part of my spiritual family and still is from the lessons that he has taught me. And then my wife is a part of my spiritual family. The friends that we were with this week are a part of my spiritual family. Um, the, our children and our grandchildren are a part of our spiritual family. And um, also those brothers and sisters in Christ that I am discipling are a part of my spiritual family. And so we should all have a spiritual family. We should all know who is a part of that family. And so what I encourage you to do is to um, go home today and make a list. Or if you're at home, you can do it right now. Make a list of who would you see as spiritual mentors, who has influenced your life, and who has helped you to maintain that faith which brings you hope. Think about who would be in your spiritual family. And then um, the next question is, are you discipling anyone? Are you teaching anyone in that spiritual family, the Christian faith? I've kind of, um, you know, made funny jokes about this. Um, but it's really, I think, quite true that, you know, we as Lutherans, um, we used to see the church grow. And how did it grow? Uh, through marriages and children and baptisms, Right? And so each generation that came through would have another family and then they would come to church and have their children baptized and the church would continue to grow. So what do we do in an era where uh, the younger generation um, doesn't really come to church, doesn't see the church as a vital part of their lives? Then we need to go to them. We need to be the church where they are at. And so that becomes an important question for us, especially those of us who are parents and grandparents. How can we teach our children? How can we multiply that faithfulness so that the church once again grows? We used to build the church by creating spectacular worship experiences. Post-COVID, you can't really do that anymore. And so let's begin to rethink how this early church operated as a symbol or as a way for us to make our way into the future. And the key here is that we are included. We are a part of this congregation that the preacher is preaching to. And what he is telling us is let us run the race. He's not saying, you run the race. He's not saying, let me run the race. He says, let us run the race. And so what we learned from this is that even though we might run our own race, it's not a solitary race. It takes a team. The team needs to be running the race with us. I'm privileged to be married to a runner. 
And uh, Patty has a running team. She has running friends who run with her, one very close friend who runs every week, a brother-in-law who runs with her on occasion. And um, so she has um, some people that run with her. That's part of her extended running family. And then she also has her immediate family who supports her and uh, encourages her. Um, I like to tell her that I'm her number one cheerleader. And uh, so you'll see me with the pom-poms at the race. And, uh, but also the shoe store clerk is a part of that team because you want to get just the right fit on the shoe. So you need to be able to communicate and have some relationship with the store so that you're making sure that you keep getting those good shoes. Um, and then sometimes at a race, they'll actually have like a big community pasta feed the night before. You might say it's the last meal before the race. And so there's a wider community that's a part of this racing community as well. So when he says, let us run the race, we're running individual races, but we're not running alone. We need one another to be able to run the race. The temptation at this point in this sermon is to, he acknowledges that this congregation is ready to give up, to disown their identity in Christ, and to just quit. The race has become really hard, really difficult. And um, I know it can seem like it's an easy thing, but it's not. It takes a lot of hard work to run the race. So what the coach is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, is that he can see things that we can't see as runners. And what he wants us to know is that we are running towards the kingdom of God. Remember, the kingdom of God is in heaven, but we also pray for that kingdom to come to us here on earth as well. So we are running towards the kingdom of heaven. And the race needs to be run. If you and I are up next, if we're not going to run, the church is going to continue to dwindle. So no matter what kind of shape we're in, and I'm in terrible shape, but no matter what kind of shape we're in, we need to start running. So the race is about keeping focus then. The preacher says that the focus is keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Keeping your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the lead runner. And he is showing us where to run. He has taken the lead. He is the pioneer runner. He is also the perfecter of our run. He'll tell us if our gate is off. And he'll get us back on track. It is Jesus who makes it possible for us to run at all. And he teaches us how to run the hills, which are not a lot of fun. He teaches us how to pace ourselves with Sabbath rest and with an active faith in God. Jesus teaches us how to keep going, even even when we want to give up. Do you remember earlier when I told you that your active Christian faith 
serving, praying, those active things of faith would actually bring you hope? Well, the preacher here is reminding us that that same act of faith, serving, loving, praying, will also bring you suffering and persecution. Running the race is not an easy venture. It comes at a cost. It takes time. It takes money. It takes resources. And it takes endurance. And so when, when the preacher is telling us that <clears throat> we must run the race that is set before us, what he is telling us is that the same is true for the spiritual race that we're looking at. Christians will get tired and worn down and winded and will want to stop running. It's the same. Because there is costs. This race is costly. There's a financial cost. Um, as a business person, maybe your company needs the deal. But it's an unethical deal. But if you make the deal, you'll make a lot of money for the company and for yourself. So do you do the deal? As Christians, we might choose not to do the deal. It can be costly. The cost of running this spiritual race is also an emotional and spiritual cost. How do you love your enemy? How do you love your enemy? Especially if you can't tolerate your enemy. How do you love them? Will you love them when they attack you? Will you love them when they hurt you? Or will you want to seek revenge and fight back? A prayer life is difficult, and it can become a burden. Do you find time and focus, or do you give up on it? Active Christian faith can also interfere with our politics. Have you aligned yourself with a political party? Your faith and your party is one, either conservative or liberal? I mean, both sides run that risk. And how do you interact with Christians who might disagree with you? Can you love them? Can you love them too? In uh, verses 14 and 15, it says to us, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are... Uh, that lost contact is going to be a problem here. For, <laughs> for those who are not, um, I'm sorry, verse 14, read that. <laughs> and then verse 15, look after each other so that none of you, um, none of your faith in, um, it's, it's lost. So the two introductions I can get. Work on living in peace with everyone and look after each other. Let's remember those two commands. The problem is that no matter how much we want to be like Jesus, we are not going to be like Jesus. 
but we can still work at imitating Jesus. There's an old story about um, a, a telephone booth in uh, downtown of an old city. And uh, on that telephone booth, there is plastered a sticker that says, Are you tired of sinning? And then it says, If so, please read John 3.16. Then below the sticker, there is a sign scribbled on the wall. And it says, If you are not tired of sinning, call 602-6789. The challenge for us is that we live in between the two realms, right? We are saint and sinner. We are bound and we are free. We are not like Jesus. And some days we run the race. And then some days we don't. And yet we are called to imitate him. A reminder from the early part of our reading here this morning. Um, And let us run the race with endurance, the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy waiting for him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Think of Jesus and all that he has endured. Jesus has run the race. He is teaching us how to run and, in, and encouraging, us, encouraging us to keep running. This um, past week, uh, actually it was Friday, uh, we made a trek to this um, highlight of a, a natural park, a national park. It was uh, called Kling, Klingman's Dome. And um, it's one of the highest points on the Blue Ridge Trail, uh, the high point in the Smoky Mountains. And uh, if you climb all the way up to Kingman's Dome, it's about a mile climb from the parking area, you get to see a 360-degree view of, um, of the whole valley uh, around that mountain peak. And um, you, the rangers has told people that you can see on a good day, you can see seven different states um, all around Klingman's Dome on that 360-degree view. The problem is getting up there because it's like a 10 to 12-degree grade. Um, it is a hike. It is a climb. And um, I know that uh, there, there was um, times when I was climbing that hike that I wanted to stop, and thankfully there's some benches so I could stop and rest. Um, but my coach kept me going, and she kept encouraging me, and kept, kept my eyes focused on the goal. The goal was to get up to Klingman's Dome. And so that's what Jesus is trying to um, do for us in this Christian race. So what, he's, what, what the preacher is saying is you can make it. Not only can you make it, but we can make it together. And um, in verses 12 and 13, he highlights how we can do that together. So take a a new grip with your um, tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet to run 
so, uh, so uh, feel so that those who are weak and lame will not uh, fail but become strong. So I use that image as let's limp to the finish line together. I mean, that's how I got up to Klingman's Dome. Let's limp to that finish line together. Let's huff and puff to the finish line together. We can do this. We are the church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. The preacher then tells us a story about two mountains. One could call it a tale of two mountains. Mount Sinai points to the old covenant where fear reigns and we come as perpetual unclean sinners. On Mount Sinai, there is blood of fear and violence and vengeance and tragedy. We never receive resolution or true forgiveness for our sins because this is the old covenant. But on Mount Mount Zion, it is different. Jesus has brought us to Mount Zion, which has a new covenant. And in that new covenant, on Mount Zion, it is not something tangible that you can touch like Sinai. It's not dark and foreboding. When you come to Mount Zion, you come to an actual city of the living God. The citizens of this heavenly city are countless angels and assemblies of God's firstborn children, those whose names are written in heaven. What the preacher is telling us here is that these are the Christians who have gone to the reward, those who are baptized children of God, who have departed this life and now reside with God in heaven. These are the Christians who have gone to receive the judgment. And the judgment that they have received is that they have all been declared not guilty. You see, down at Mount Zion, that physical, tangible mountain, everyone is still guilty. And we have to go back day after day after day to get our sins forgiven. But on the new mountain... Mount Zion, there is a living God who has come and declared us not guilty. The blood on Mount Sinai is the blood of perpetual sacrifice. It's Abel's blood that calls out for vengeance. On Mount Zion, the blood has been sprinkled, and that blood is the sacrifice that Jesus made for you and for me. Then the preacher reminds us that there are actually not two mountains, but only one. There is one God, and God speaks as one in the same. The God of Mount Sinai is also the God of Mount Zion. The difference is which path will we take up the mountain? Will we take the path of the old covenant or will we take the path of the new covenant? The path of perpetual sin and sacrifice which leads to death or the path to Zion where the sacrifice has already been made? The mountain shakes and there is the heat of the devouring fire but you, you have nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of because Jesus has gone before us. For we will see God on Mount Zion in that heavenly city. 
So let's keep running the race that is set before us. Remember your spiritual family. Don't quit now. We're almost there. Amen.